Well, good morning, and I want to bring you greetings from Faith Fellowship Baptist Church in Brandon. I'm sure some of you are uh, well acquainted with them. I'm, I'm sure some of you more mature people here remember Larry Thiessen. Uh, used to sing with Jan's team ministry. He's still there and still working very hard, doing various things. And in fact, some of the some of the homes that he ministers in, the people there ask him when is he when is he going to start acting as age? Uh, he's 81, I think, but he puts a lot of us younger folk to shame. Join with me, please, as we seek the Lord's guidance. Heavenly Father, we offer thanks to you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to remind us over and over again of your grace, your mercy, and your love for us. Lord, we have to be reminded so often, but we appreciate your word, your spirit that guides us. We want, we want to give you honor and praise for all that you are and all that you do. Direct us this morning, teach us, give us hearts to hear, and give us the will to act according to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we've read the text this morning. It comes from John 8, uh, verses 1 to 12. A question, though, just to give consideration. How would you define freedom? Is freedom the right to speak your mind without the threat of civil action being taken against you? If this is so, we do not live in a free society anymore. Today, people are being bludgeoned by political correctness to a point where we not only do not feel free to speak our mind, we aren't free to speak our mind. We could be charged with hate crimes. Hate is an emotion, it's not an action. Hateful attitudes may reveal themselves in criminal actions, which in turn should be subject to criminal prosecution. But hate itself is not a punishable offense. Only criminal actions can or should be or prosecuted. This climate of fear created by politically motivated interest groups is eroding our free society and gradually turning it into an authoritarian state where the government is the authority. And freedom of speech is a forgotten vestige of bygone years, not the reality in which we live today. A poet from the past said this, You're free to speak your mind, my friend, as long as you agree with me. Don't criticize the politically correct, for it's they who shape your destiny. And if you do, you'll lose your job, your mind, and all the friends you knew will find a way to silence you. So as such, we can no longer say we live in a free society. The first principle of which is freedom of speech. Freedom of speech has been destroyed by political interests whose desire is the destruction of free society, freedom of religion, freedom of press, and freedom of assembly. I heard an interesting fact regarding securing a full-grown elephant with a rope which is far too weak to hold even a strong dog, much less a full-grown elephant. When asked by a passerby how the thin rope could possibly hold this full-grown elephant, the keeper explained the process this way. When the elephant was very small, a rope adequate to hold him was used to tie him in his stall. He pulled and pulled and pulled against the rope, but could never get free. And eventually, his desire to get free was permanently extinguished, and he could be retained by the thin rope. And the rest of his life, he assumed that that rope could still hold him. Our society is headed in the same direction or already is there in terms of freedom of speech. 
As a Christian, though, that's enough of my political rant. Um, as a Christian, how, how do you see freedom? How do you understand freedom as a Christian? Who or what makes us free? How have we been made free? Can this free condition ever change? And for what reason are we made free? As we read the scripture this morning, and we see that the Lord Jesus said to the woman, finally, after everything was discussed, he said, I, neither do I condemn you, go your way and sin no more. In this scripture section, we find the Lord Jesus making a woman free. We could ask, by what authority did Jesus do this? To answer that question, we need to recall Jesus' mission in coming to dwell among mankind in the first place. He said of himself in Matthew 3.28, Verily I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. And in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul said this in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 7. For this is a good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and certainty. And again Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All things are of God who has reconciled unto him, reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation which is this that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation thus the authority by which Jesus made this woman free is the absolute authority given him as the acceptable ransom for her sins as well as for mine and for yours, and in fact, for the sins of the whole world. It's an interesting point made in 2 Corinthians 5.19. It says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. If the sins of the world are not imputed to the world, to whom were they imputed? A few verses on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So at what point in time then did God start imputing the sins of the world to Christ? Was it at his death on the cross? Was it at his resurrection, at his ascension? If Jesus is the ransom, also called the substitutionary lamb, wouldn't sin be imputed to him when he was slain? If this is true, we have to establish when Jesus was slain. When does the scripture say that the Son of God was slain? If you look in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we read these words. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, 
But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Those would be the, the Hebrews who did not trust God or didn't believe his word. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he has said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished, the works were finished, God says, from the foundation of the world. So although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, what works were finished? What works is God saying were finished from the foundation of the world? Peter makes this statement in 1 Peter 1.18-20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So we're getting closer to the answer now, The plan of salvation was foreordained from the foundation of the world. It was not an afterthought that God had to try in order to repair a broken world. This plan was revealed at a later date, but its effect was set in motion from the foundation of the world, as we have seen in 1 Peter 1.20. And finally, the answer to the question when Jesus was slain, if sin was imputed to Christ since he was slain, When was he slain? Revelation chapter 13 tells us directly. The first few verses here are referring to the Antichrist and his statements against God. But in verse 8, we get the answer. Starting in verse 6, Revelation 13, it says, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. That's when sin was imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, it says in Isaiah 53. If Isaiah is already saying that God laid on the sacrificial lamb the iniquity of everyone, and he is speaking in past tense, it becomes obvious that the plan of God and the effective work of laying all sin on Christ occurred before the foundation of the world, as the scripture directly tells us. So God has imputed all sin on Christ from the foundation of the world. And this is why God allows, if you will, the various dreadful things that go on, whether it's wars, whether it's strife, witchcraft, sin. We sometimes ask the question, why does a good God allow such and such? That's why. Because he has laid this sin of the world upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This allows God's judgment to be withheld until a later date as he patiently waits for all of us to turn to him and believe, trusting in Christ alone for eternal salvation. And it is the long-suffering or the patience of God that leads people to repentance, which God desires for all mankind. In 2 Peter 3.9 we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering 
to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So who made us free? Jesus, on whom our sin was laid, has made us free. And how did he do it? He did it by taking the sin upon himself and in turn giving those who trust in him his own righteousness. In Christ we are completely free, unlike the full-grown elephant bound by a thin rope. While God is patient or long-suffering with us, time will eventually run out. Time will run run out for us to trust Christ. Time ran out for my older brother on the 3rd of January, 2019. Time will one day run out for everyone. While all sin of all time has been imputed to Christ, people are not automatically saved. We have to understand that. We must personally accept Christ as Savior, trusting in Him alone for our eternal salvation. This is the evidence of believing God that we must do in our day and in our time to show our faith in God. When we acknowledge this truth, Jesus makes us completely free. The statement free indeed means completely free, not like the elephant still tied to the past by a thin rope incapable of holding him if he were to pull against it. Some Christians may still be tied to their past um, because they do not realize that Christ has made them free indeed. But Jesus is the complete satisfaction for our sin debt against a holy God. In 1 John 2, 2, it tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation here means the satisfactory payment. It means that God is completely satisfied with the payment the Lord Jesus made. The payment that is completely acceptable to God himself. God is satisfied with the payment Christ made on behalf of me and on behalf of you to fully pay our sin debt. Are you and I satisfied with it? Are we trusting in Christ alone for our acceptance with God? Or do we think that we can add something to it, to what the Lord Jesus has done already by dying on the cross? Anything we might do actually diminishes from what Christ has done. It does not enhance it. God says that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, while we, by adding our own effort to it, are saying that Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient, and that we're adding to it what's missing. But God says nothing is missing, and the Lord Jesus on the cross said it is finished. It is complete. The work is done. I trust that there is nothing holding you captive to the past or even to present conditions that you have confessed to the Lord. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The text here says that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, so we could ask the question, how much unrighteousness is left? There is none left. If he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, there is none left. None. We are complete in Christ, as the scripture says. Completely free from the penalty of sin, for it is laid on Christ. God does not exact judgment twice. One perfect and complete payment is enough. And Jesus has made us completely free by giving us his righteousness. We mentioned that God was reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. It is upon this basis that Jesus could offer complete forgiveness to the woman who sinned. 
just as he is free to offer complete forgiveness to all of us today. Recall when Peter denied knowing the Lord? Peter was restored to ministry after denying the Lord on the same basis as the woman in question in our text. How would we have handled this situation? Jesus went and he talked to Peter personally. And after asking Peter three times, do you love me? He said to Peter, feed my lambs. So guess what? In that situation, the Lord Jesus just made Peter free from his sin of denying the Lord. What might we have done? What would the worldly person do? I'll maybe just keep this wrongdoing in my pocket till a later time when I can use it to blackmail this fellow or hold it over his head. That, of course, is the attitude of the sinful and criminal mind. But Jesus said he came to deliver captives, to set at liberty those who are bruised. In Luke 4.18, Jesus said this of himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those that are bruised. Have you been bruised in your life? Jesus will set you at liberty. Are you captive to something? Jesus and only Jesus can deliver you from it. This is his ministry, to make us free and to set us at liberty permanently. And for what reason? Why does Jesus make us free? Well, he does it for various reasons, but certainly to restore our relationship with God. In John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says this in his prayer, that they all may be one as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and you have loved them as you have loved me. In Genesis, as Adam and Eve did things their own way, they plunged the whole human race into sin. Now that Christ has taken the sin of the world on himself, he has restored to right relationship those who trust him alone as the promised deliverer of Genesis 3.15, where God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This restoration of man to a loving relationship with his creator is one of the purposes of God in making those who believe free in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, it says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And he has raised us together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Both God's mercy in not giving sinful people the condemnation they deserve and God's grace which is giving people gifts that they do not deserve are shown by God in his work of making us free in Christ. We are delivered from sin and free to serve our Lord and God with confidence of his unending love and provision for us. 
Any proper parent wants their children to be certain of their unfailing love for the child. This is why parents seem to have so much patience with their own children, much more than those of us looking from the outside think they deserve, which is probably true. That's called grace. Getting what we do not deserve. Isn't it interesting that God says that we are, com- we are to come to a throne of grace? It's not a throne of reward for good behavior. It's not a throne of promotion for faithful service. It's a throne of grace where God gives gifts to the undeserving in spite of their lack of merit. In fact, merit doesn't even enter into the conversation where grace is concerned. God does this to show his unchanging love and care for his own. Because all of God, uh, all good gifts come down from the Father of lights, as we read in James 1.17. And in Ephesians 4.8 it says this, Wherefore he has, or he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. God shows his gracious attitude toward us, and his great love for us in his gracious behavior. It's interesting that we are told to come with a particular attitude to the throne of grace. What is the attitude we're told to come with? In, a fe- or in Hebrews story, chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16, in verse 16 it says this, or excuse me, 15, We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says we are to come boldly or shamelessly to receive from God what we do not deserve. That's what the text says. We are to come boldly, trusting that our gracious God will do as he said he would do. On the basis that God was not imputing the sins of the world to them, Jesus was executing justice in not imputing the penalty of the woman's sin to her as well. Jesus knew that he would pay himself the full penalty for this woman's sin, just as he does for us today. Because this full payment would be made for this woman by the Lord Jesus, he is free to fully forgive her. He was offering forgiveness on the basis of what he would accomplish very shortly in the future. In this full forgiveness, Jesus made her free. Restoring Peter was on the same basis. Jesus had paid the price for Peter's sin of denying him. On that basis, Jesus was executing justice in making Peter completely free. He did not hold over Peter's head and say, Now, this is strike one, Peter. Don't swing and miss again, or you'll be dismissed from being an apostle. We are forgiven today on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished in the past. Jesus does not just set us free. He makes us free indeed. He said in John 8.31, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This freedom we have been given in Christ is freedom indeed, which means free completely, or certainly, or free without a doubt. The Lord, because he has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, has made us free and guaranteed it. We are therefore completely free from the penalty of sin. It has been and ever will be imputed to Christ. 
His righteousness is imputed to all who trust him as Savior and only to those who trust him alone as their only hope of eternal salvation. The experiential proof of this is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us until the day of redemption, the scripture says in Ephesians 4.30, and that's when we receive our new body. And also Jesus said in John 14.16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. If the Holy Spirit is going to abide with us forever, then he will not leave us. Thus our condition of freedom in Christ is not changing. As God does not change, neither does our membership in the family of God. We are completely secure in Christ. What can change is our closeness to God in fellowship, and, uh, and this is based on our obedience to God's will. But our membership in God's family does not and cannot change any more than God can change once we have trusted Christ as Savior. And for what purpose, then, are we made free? We are made free for a purpose, and that is to do God's will, not our own. We are free to do those things that please the Father, as Jesus said he did. He said in John 8, 29, And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And we too are directed to do, this, to do the same. We could not do this without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are free to do as Paul says in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Another reason God makes us free in Christ is to reveal his ability to redeem the sinner. Angels know nothing of redemption. They cannot be redeemed. Satan cannot be redeemed, and possibly he thought that if he could get men to sin, he would be, man would be irredeemable as well. Satan himself would have known nothing of the concept of redemption from personal experience. God is showing, as it says in Ephesians 3, 9, and 10, to all the principalities and powers, his manifold wisdom through the church, which is made up of all people who believe Jew and Gentile. The church is where the ministry of reconciliation is revealed to all principalities and powers. It is the place of perfect forgiveness, of perfect redemption, of perfect freedom in and through Christ alone. These facts from Ephesians 3 are part of God's purpose in making us free in Christ and only in Christ. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Have you trusted Christ as Savior? Are you trusting in him alone for your eternal salvation? If you have, Jesus has made you completely free indeed. If you have not as yet trusted him, you may even now, in the stillness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart. As with my brother, his time ran out a few weeks back. Someday our time will run out as well. But today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear the call, turn to the Lord and trust in him. The Lord Jesus said he has come that he might give life and that we might have it more abundantly. Don't let the devil convince you otherwise, but stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled with any yoke of bondage from which Christ has made you free. Just as the elephant could be free 
if he availed himself of the power that he had, we can be free if we avail ourselves of the power of abundant freedom in Christ. Let Jesus take away the rope that binds you and make you completely free and secure in his great love for you so that you might serve the only living and true God, Jesus Christ our Lord, with an attitude of thanksgiving and praise toward him. It is God's desire that we should be completely free or free indeed, free to serve him in spirit and in truth, relying on his word, not our will, relying on his spirit, not the world's opinion, that we might please God in all that we do, and having done all to stand firm in the love of Christ that makes us free indeed. Amen. For response, let's turn to number 210. Number 210, we'll sing the first three verses and I'll ask Don to come for a closing prayer and then we'll sing verse 4. 210, Jesus made it all. Please join me in prayer. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.